Hey guys, welcome again to RUF. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the campus minister here. A special welcome if you just came in from the RUF versus RUF intramural soccer game, which in all the genius of scheduling was planned on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Two RUF soccer teams. I'm pleased to report that RUF won. Um, but, but sad and also that RUF did not win. Tonight. That's right. Okay. Um, uh, inside joke. Okay. Um, well, anyway, but welcome to RUF. Um, a special welcome to you if you're, if you're new, if this is your first time or one of your first times here. Um, a very warm welcome to you. Please let myself or um, one of our interns, Will, and where's Jen? Is Jen here? Jen went to the bathroom. Oh, Jen. Jen, Jen. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, let, let us know how we can help you, how we can welcome you, if we have any questions we can answer, or just ask someone that looks like they know what they're doing um, here. Um, RUF, we want to be a place where, regardless of where you're coming from, religiously or non-religiously, that you feel welcome, and that you feel like you can um, sort of process the things that we're talking about from the Bible, about this man named Jesus and the claims that he made, at your own pace. Um, so welcome to you, and we're glad to have you. Um, if you have been here, you know that we've been going through a series this semester called Questions God Asks. And up until this point, we've seen uh, God asking questions of human beings. And we're like, that's weird because human beings don't know everything and God knows everything. So why is God doing this? And we've seen you know, God revealing himself to us through these questions. But tonight, there's something a little bit different. Tonight, we see God the Son, the Lord Jesus, asking a question of God the Father. So it's really, in a sense, God asking God a question, not God asking us a question. And the question that Jesus asks the Father as he hangs on the cross is one of the most poignant and heart-wrenching questions that has ever been asked. Why, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in Matthew chapter 27. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and start turning there. Um, but before we get going, um, I have a question for you tonight. If you are here tonight at RUF and you would consider yourself a Christian, or if you're here at RUF and you aren't, a, you know, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, but you say, you know, I have a good relationship with God. Things are okay between me and God. If you come tonight and you say, I have a good relationship with God. Things are okay with us. My question for you is why? On what basis do you have a good relationship with God? More specifically, what event would you point to where you say, at that moment is when I knew that everything was okay between me and God? And if I asked you guys and we gave our answers, there'd probably be some different ones. Maybe that moment for you was uh, when you went on a retreat, you know, with your church, or more famously with someone else's church. It was a different kind of church. Um, that's, that's popular. Um, and so you went and you had this experience and for like the first time you felt like this real guilt and this real sort of burden of your sin and you accepted Jesus into your heart and you say, that's the moment where I'd say things were right between me and God. Or you went on a mission trip, maybe, and you got out of your Christian bubble and you flew over to this random place with these people that spoke a different language, but lo and behold, they also believe in Jesus. And so you were like, oh, I think I can do this now. Like, these, like this is legit. This isn't just like my community. And you're like, I finally can buy into this. Or um, maybe you had intellectual doubts and something overcame them. You said, okay, finally I can believe in God. 
Um, or, like some of us, you woke up one night after, you know, partying or hooking up again, and you just said, God, I'm just, I'm tired of it, and I don't want to do this anymore, and I want to change. And then your life began to change. And that, maybe that's the moment where you're like, at that moment, I knew that everything was right between me and God. If tonight your answer sounds like that, if you point to an event in your life where, you, where, where that's where you say, God and, uh, me and me and God were good at that moment, I would submit to you that that's not good news. That that's not the gospel, actually. I want to show you tonight that the gospel isn't about us. If, you're, if you think about that moment and you think, man, it was that moment where I accepted Jesus, um, how do you know you were sincere enough? How do you know that you said the right words? How do you know that God accepted you? And what's going to happen when you begin to doubt? Maybe have serious doubts. Um, very often, that's what we, that's what we think of. Um, but I want to submit to you tonight that the good news, if it's about us, if it involves us, is not good news at all. Because the, the good news isn't about what has happened to us The good news is about what has happened to Jesus. Um, The good news is what has happened to Jesus. A a theologian named Michael Horton puts it like this. What has happened to us is the result of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. The gospel is what has happened to Jesus. Um, So what I believe God's going to do tonight from his word as we look at at, uh, Jesus' crucifixion is he's going to call us not to put our faith in our faith. Not to put our faith in our ability to believe what Jesus has done, but instead for us to put our faith in Jesus and what he has done on our behalf over 2,000 years ago on a hill in Jerusalem. So if you would, open up to Matthew chapter 27. Or just look towards the front of the room. And uh, we will begin reading in verse 32. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. Uh, y'all, this is the word of God. As they went out, so, the, uh, so what's happened here is Jesus has been um, uh, accused, he's been sentenced to death, and now he's carrying the cross. He's been whipped, beaten, he's carrying the cross um, to Golgotha. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went out into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing as we consider it. Father, we do ask your blessing on your word. Um, Lord, uh, without your spirit, we are hopeless to apply your word to our heart. Lord, I know I feel very, Lord, insufficient um, and ill-prepared to preach on your cross, Lord Jesus. Um, But Lord, despite our distractions, despite our inadequacies, Lord, despite our sin, would you come and speak to us tonight through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So with all that in mind, all that I said about if the gospel is about you, it's not the good news, that the good news is about what Jesus did, I want to look just specifically at what exactly is happening on the cross. Um, and uh, just kind of just just dig in, see what's going on on the cross. What uh, exactly has happened on the cross and why should we put our faith in this event? Uh, and to do that, there's a, there's a hymn that we're going to sing after this called In Christ Alone. Um, by Keith and Kristen Getty. It sounds like an old hymn, but it's not. It's one of those cool things. Um, but uh, if you're into songs sounding old that aren't, which you all are, because I know you all listen to the Abbott Brothers. So, um, uh, okay. All right. Uh, but there's a line together. Uh, there's a line towards the end that says, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. And we're going to kind of use that line to sort of break this up and walk through what exactly happened on the cross. So first, on that cross as Jesus died. What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? Um, well, first off, we would know from studying the scripture, if you had, that the reason why, even if you're not a Christian, you probably understand in some general sense, the reason why Jesus went to the cross was to die for sins, whatever that means, right? Um, Jesus said just before this at the Last Supper, he says, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Um, In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John 3.16, if you've been to a football game, please be the guy that holds up John 3.16, by the way, the football game. I love that guy. I don't know what happened to that guy. Um, but John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that so who, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came and died on the cross so that his people could have life, so that they wouldn't die, so he could forgive their sins. But the first thing that we would notice from this text about, what, what, about Jesus' death is that it was willing. 
Jesus did not succumb to his injuries. Jesus did not get duped into here. He, didn't, he doesn't even, if you read the chapters before this, he doesn't even defend himself. He goes willingly to the cross. Notice what they say in verse uh, 40 and following. These people are making, you can just imagine that someone's hanging on this cross, this Roman, this implement of torture and death, that they're literally, their bodies nailed up there. He's been whipped with this scourge, which would have ripped his flesh open, and he's there naked on this cross. And just imagine walking by and insulting this person. I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine. But look at what they say. Um, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they, they say this really interesting thing. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Which is interesting because it's one of those moments where the person said something that they didn't really even know they were saying. Because they're saying, he saved others, he can't even save himself. But the point is, in order to save others, Jesus cannot save himself, right? Jesus is standing in their place. My daughter, um, she lent me her Jesus Storybook Bible tonight, so thank you, Georgia, for that. Uh, yes, she is as sweet as she sounds. Um, but there's the, the part here uh, talking about Jesus' um, crucifixion. There's a picture there. Um, it goes like this. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he called. If you're really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course, they were right. Jesus could have climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed that little girl and stilled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Jesus went willingly to the cross um, on our behalf to die for our sins. Even when Jesus physically dies in verse 50, you notice there it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus didn't finally just give in. I mean, he died a lot faster than the other people actually being crucified with him. Jesus gave himself up on our behalf. But you might be skeptical, right? Whether you're a Christian or not. And you're like, yeah, okay, but Jesus like, comes back to life in three days, so what's the big deal? Right? And it's like okay to think that. Um, like the guy died, but like if you knew you were going to be raised in three days and you could save everybody from their sin, you're like, I, could, I, could, I would do that. You know, people have been in comas, you know, longer than, you know, three days. Like you might have been drunk for longer than three days, you might be thinking. Um, so why is it so bad to die when you know that you're going to be resurrected anyway? Uh, the problem with that is we think that death is the medical definition of death. You know, the medical definition of death is the cessation of life. The permanent cessation of all bodily functions is the medical and legal definition of death. But according to the Bible, our lives don't end when our body stops working. We continue to live on eternally. We were created to live eternally. So death must be much more profound than just your body dying. And the death that Jesus is suffering on the cross is much more than his physical body dying. Um, many of you, maybe you've seen The Passion of the Christ. Um, I have not seen it, so it's like I'm like, maybe I'm disqualified from this job. Um, but if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you know that it's very violent. Um, Roger Ebert, who's a film critic, he said, 
What I learned from The Passion of the Christ is that no movie will ever get an NC-17 rating for violence. Because if this one didn't, no movie is going to get an NC-17 rating for violence. The movie is almost completely focused on the physical torture, suffering, and death of Jesus. But if you read the passage, there's actually very little about Jesus' physical suffering and his death. Um, it's really funny. It's not funny, but in, uh, in verse 35... It's not funny. Um, uh, it says, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. It's like very matter of fact. And after they crucified, it's like the dude's getting nails driven into him. And it's like it just, Matthew just glosses over it. And the reason is because death, Romans would say that the wages of sin is death. And that means much more than just dying. That means being uh, suffering the consequences of one's sin forever. Because sin itself is, tre- is treason against God. And it has consequences that go out into eternity. So that uh, if we are not made right with God, then we suffer the consequences of our sin forever. Um, it's punishable by hell forever. I know that's not popular or it doesn't sound good to say, but it's true. It's, from, it's biblical. So when Jesus is on the cross, he is actually suffering damnation the death that jesus died on the cross happened while he was still alive on the cross literally hell came up to jesus and he suffered the full wrath of god for his people's sin he suffered the wrath of god completely so that it was satisfied and that's our second point the wrath of god was satisfied what, it, what does it mean when we say, okay, the, God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus, this kind of things we just throw around, what does that actually mean? Um, so we, you know, we saw that, that death isn't just physical, um, that Jesus on the cross is actually experiencing hell, he's experiencing the consequences of damnation, um, and he's being damned. So look at what happens uh, to Jesus uh, on the cross. So between the hours, uh, it says the sixth hour and the ninth hour. That's between 12 noon and 3 p.m. I'm not really sure why it was beautiful, scandalous night. That kind of threw me off. It was during the day. Just going to clear that up for everybody. Um, still a great song. Really liked it. Um, there's dark. Well, I guess it is a night because it got dark. Oh, all right. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Which brings me to my next point. It was dark. Um, which literally is the next point. All right, so from noon to three, the brightest time of the day, there's darkness over the land. And there's darkness over, over the land. I don't know if it was just right here or, or beyond. I don't know. Um, but there's darkness because in the scripture, when God's wrath is being poured, when God is judging sin, which he must do. This is like a satellite point. You might be like, why does God have to judge sin anyway? Um, and we're not really into that, but let me just say this. Um, does it make you feel like God is good to think that all the things, the terrible atrocities that people have committed throughout history, that they never suffered justice for on earth, that that's just never, ever going to be dealt with? Would a good God not deal with sin? Of course he would. Um, but we can talk about that later over coffee if you want to. I would love that. Um, that sounds like a fun thing to talk about over coffee. Um, so there's a darkness on the earth. And I remember um, when I was a kid, when I was eight, we moved from God's country, middle Georgia, to um, a terrible, terrible place known as South Florida. And um, 
But we moved there. It was two weeks before Hurricane Andrew. And Hurricane Andrew was like the big famous hurricane before Katrina. And um, it was just caused all kinds of devastation. I remember seeing uh, boats and cars wrapped around the same telephone pole. It was nuts. Um, but what I really remember is when we were driving over to where we were going to stay during the hurricane and ride it out, it was so dark in the middle of the day that as this storm was coming in and all this destruction and devastation was coming in, the first thing that came in was the darkness. Uh, and such is the degree of God's wrath that is coming on to Jesus that it actually gets dark outside. Everything is plunged into a deep darkness. But the worst reality about Christ taking God's wrath for our sin happens in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the abandonment of his father which is particularly heartbreaking because before the world ever began into eternity past, Jesus had always been in perfect harmony and closeness with the Father. The thing that sustained Jesus when he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights was his fellowship with the Father. That was that thing that he had always depended on. And now he's understanding the greatest curse of being damned is being separated from God. Um, we probably, you may, you may feel that in like, a, in like your own relationships. I know I felt this. The worst thing about being in a relationship is the fear that once they really get to know who I am, that they will leave me. Um, many of us are afraid to even date because we're afraid of being abandoned. And that's what Jesus is going through here. It's the abandonment of God. Uh, and I want to just go on a, on a limb for a second and do two readings, and hopefully you guys will hang with I just... This can say this better than me, so just hang with me. The first is from Donald McLeod's book, The Person of Christ. He says this, It is clear from all the accounts that Jesus' experience of turmoil and anguish was both real and profound. His sorrow was as great as a man could bear. His fear convulsive. His, astonish- his astonishment very near paralyzing. He came within a hair of breakdown. He faced the will of God as raw holiness in its most acute form, and it terrified him. What Christ saw was God with the sword raised. The sight was unbearable. He would stand before that God answering for the sin of the world, indeed identified with the sin of the world. He became, as Martin Luther said, the greatest sinner that ever was. No one ever feared death so much as this man. He feared it because for him it was no sleep, But the wages of sin, death with the sting, death unmodified and unmitigated, death as involving all that sin deserved, he alone would face it without a covering, totally exposed to God's hatred of sin, and he would face death without God. Deprived of the one solace and the one resource which had always been there. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know, he took damnation lovingly. Christ was separated from God. And then maybe something more to our level. 
It wasn't the nails that kept him there, it was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down his face. The face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. And even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break. That creation itself would tear apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. On the cross, Jesus suffers everything that we deserve for our sin. He takes it all on himself, and he understands the full weight of that when he asks God, why have you forsaken me? He did nothing to deserve it. He had done everything perfectly. Yet he was treated like one that just deserved to be cast away from God's presence. And he does all of this to remove our sin. So every sin on him was laid. What did Jesus do with our sins? We've seen what it meant for Jesus to die, what it meant for Jesus to take the wrath of God, and what does, it, what does Jesus do with our sin? The reason why this is all happening to Jesus is because there's a transfer happening, a substitution happening. As Luther said in that quote, Jesus became the greatest sinner there ever was. Which if you've read about Jesus, should break your heart. Because Jesus had never sinned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the same thing. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sins of Jesus' people are put onto him, and he bears them away. Um, If you've been to RUF, you probably have heard us say, whether it was me or whether it was Matt, that the thing about sin is it can't just be swept away. It was like I said before, you know, it has to be taken care of. You know when someone sins against you, you can't just let it go. It has to be paid for. Either you have to pay for it internal or they have to pay for it. And Jesus takes that penalty. And in the scripture, the image for us is of two cups. God has two cups. One is a cup of wrath and one is a cup of blessing. Um, The only cup that we have by rights based on what we deserve, based on our merit, is the bitter cup of God's wrath. That's all that we deserve. That's what we've earned. It wasn't like it just happened. We earned it, each of us. The only cup that Jesus had by rights, the only cup that he earned, was was the sweet cup of God's blessing. Because he never sinned. And not only did he never sin, he always did what was pleasing to God. Could you imagine that feeling? If you're a believer in Christ, you will feel that one day. Hallelujah. But can you imagine the feeling of always pleasing God, always enjoying and glorifying God? That's what Jesus did. Yet here he is before God, hanging on the cross naked, oozing blood, and he drinks the cup of God's wrath. And he doesn't just drink from it. He drinks it down all the way. He drinks every last drop. 
And the reason why we hope in Jesus isn't because we think like in this general way that Jesus is going to kind of like deflect God's wrath from us and it probably won't get us or he's going to tuck it away somewhere. The reason why we hope in Jesus is because if we're in Jesus, there is no wrath. It's gone. Uh, The cup has been drained all the way to the bottom. Matthew doesn't say this, but John does in his account of the crucifixion. Right before Jesus dies, what does Jesus say? It is finished. It's done. Jesus had bore God's wrath in his body while living and finished the work. So that the Bible could say to us in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God is gone for Jesus' people. There's no hope of it coming back. Uh, my dad, he um, has a business that, uh, that sounds weird. My dad has a business. Um, anyway, um, he has a business and they, uh, they, they clear land like for construction, you know, so there's trees and bushes and squirrels and they take it all down. And um, the, the best way to get rid of the rest of it, not the squirrels, um, is, to, is to burn it all at the end. You know, this is the, this is the so not the squirrels, probably some squirrels in there. And, um, and so they, what they do is they clear everything and then they put everything in a huge pile. And they have this like huge bonfire, it's awesome. And, um, but what they do before they light the fire is they do a controlled burn around the pile. And the point is that if the fire gets out of control, which it does uh, on occasion, that it burns everything out until it gets to that point where you've burned everything around, it can't go any further. Why? Because there's nothing left to burn. It's all been burned up. The reason why God's wrath won't burn against you if you hope in Jesus is because there's nothing left to burn. Jesus was consumed So that when it gets to him, there's nothing left to burn. Your sin can't be counted against you. God will not only, it's not the truth that God only will not judge us for our sin. Let me start that over. God will not judge us for our sin, but God cannot judge us for our sin if we're in Jesus. It's impossible. He could not do it. It's been paid for. My favorite book title ever, because it has the same word in it three times, uh, is by a Puritan named John Owen, and it's called The Death of Death. In the death of Christ. In Christ's death, he put death to death for us. Our death is gone. It's finished. So, in light of all that, uh, the last line in this part of the hymn, which we'll sing together, is, Here in the death of Christ, I live. Um, And I said at the beginning that the gospel is good news precisely because it isn't about you and me. If it's about you and me, it's not good news. The gospel, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is that thing that happened in, during Jesus' life from the year 1 to about the year 33. That is the, that is the full content of the gospel. Um, it's that Jesus lived a perfect life that we never could live. We've already thrown that one out the window. He lived that life that we never could live, and he gives it to us freely. And he took the the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it down, and that happened in space and time. So, like, we think of this as, like, this big deal. It is the most monumental event that ever happened. And if you were walking by in Jerusalem, you would have noticed it. But if you lived 10 miles out of Jerusalem, you never would have known it happened. 
Yet Jesus was still paying for sin. Off in a place 2,000 years ago that we never were there and to a place where Paul would never visit. The gospel is what Jesus did in space and time. So the gospel doesn't involve us. But here's where we come into the picture. Because of what Jesus has done, we are called now to trust in that work. This is what we call our faith. What that doesn't mean is I'll combine Jesus' work and my believing in him, and that's the gospel. Because this is what faith is. You're all sitting down on chairs, okay? So you all have a deep and abiding faith in the chair that you're sitting on. I don't know if you've really thought about it like that, but you are all people full of faith, because here you are with your bottoms on chairs. And you have faith that the chair will hold you up, and it will not fall. Amen. And, uh, but what are you doing? What is your faith, the work that your faith is doing right now? Nothing. You are literally, by definition, doing nothing. You are sitting. You are resting on the chair. What we are called to do in response is the same way that you're treating the chair, to rest on the objective reality of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We trust what Christ has done. Um, as, a, another, as another analogy, a lot of people have said this, so I'm going to work a walking dead angle into it to make it my own. Okay. Um, so let's say that Rick and Herschel from The Walking Dead, if you've seen it, are running from a herd of zombies. Okay? You guys with me? Zombies. Okay. Um, and they come to a frozen river right by Herschel's farm. And the only way for them to get away from these zombies is to cross this frozen river. Okay? So Herschel says, Rick, I've been crossing this, this river since I was a boy. I know it can hold us. It's thick enough. At this time of the year, I could always cross it. I know that this ice will hold us beyond the shadow of a doubt. And he walks across, and he's fine. And he escapes the zombie herd. Yet Rick, you know, he's going through this existential faith crisis anyway. And... Um, He's like, you know, I'm not sure. I've never crossed over this. I actually am not sure at all that this ice can hold me. But I don't want to get eaten by zombies. So even though I don't think it's holding me, I'm going to go anyway. And he gets across to the other side. Fine. Now imagine that you walked up to Rick and Herschel and you said, well, good thing you guys had enough faith to get across that river. Or else you never would have got across. They would laugh at you, number one, because... They aren't real people. And, um, and number two, because their faith had nothing to do with it. Whether they believed the ice could hold them or not, it did. Um, so if you're here tonight and you're like, you know, this stuff sounds pretty good. And I think some of it makes sense. But, you know, honestly, I just don't feel like I can really believe in this enough. Like, I want God to give me faith. But, you know, I just, most of the time, I just don't buy it. If that's you, whether you say you're a Christian or not, could you for a moment just consider whether uh, to look past your, lack, your, your faith or lack thereof and look to the work that Jesus has done on your behalf? To stop worrying about whether you have enough faith and stop focusing on the faith that you hope will save you and instead focus on the Christ that can and will save you. Um, 
And if you believe in Jesus, okay, which I hope that many of you do, when you have a doubt, when you sin, and you do something you thought, I I just didn't think I could do that. Before you go run to your faith tank and go, okay, it's still pretty full, I think I'm good. Or before you remember that time in seventh grade where you're like, you know, I'm still pretty sure that I was sincere, so I think I'm still good. Before you do that, could you look to Jesus on the cross and see your doubts and see your sins on him and say, this faith thing, I, 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 just, I can't depend on, I can depend on Jesus. That's faith. Lord, help me to trust Jesus. And the next time that you fear that God won't forgive that sin that you just committed or that one that you committed five years ago or that thing about yourself that you think will never change, look to Jesus and see your sin on him. See him drinking the cup of judgment that that sin deserved. And lastly, when you feel like just because of who you are or what you've done or the things that you know that you're capable of, you think, I just really don't feel like God is close to me right now. He feels very far away. Could you look to Jesus and see one who never deserved for God to abandon him? See God turn his back on him and know that because of that, God could never and God will never, if you're in Jesus, leave you. Let's look to Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though we have more bad days than good days, that, Lord, most days, if we're honest, we, we, we love you very little. And some days we wonder if you're even there. Lord, thank you that you aren't depending on our level of faith to receive us, but everything we ever needed to be made right with you was done on the cross. Lord, give us confidence in Jesus and his cross and change us, we pray in his name. Amen.